I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the Sirens. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the movie The Apartment today. It is a 1960 comedy starring uh, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine and Fred McMurray. It was directed by Billy Wilder and written by I.A.L. Diamond. It is a romantic comedy, as I said. <laughs> um, although r- the romance and comedy are questionable. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely comedy. Yeah. I don't know about romance. Romance. <laughs> <laughs> The movie follows C.C. Baxter, who's played by Jack Lemmon, who works at a big insurance company in a big building in New York City, um, who wants to climb um, the corporate ladder, and in doing so, he thinks the fastest way is to lend his apartment out to four managers who can bring their mistresses there. So convenient that they all have mistresses. I know. I guess that's just the way it is in 1960 New York. Because because of that, his um, and how noisy they are, his neighbors think that um, Cece is a um, a a big uh, playboy, which he doesn't really do anything to like <laughs> deny. These it works out for him in that um, these four managers recommend him for a promotion to the personnel director. Um, uh, Sheldrake, who's played by Fred McMurray. Sheldrake promotes him in return for access to the apartment. And in order to get Baxter out of the apartment, he gives um, uh, him two tickets to the music van. And Baxter runs right out and asks this elevator operator named Fran Kubelik, played by Shirley MacLaine, um, to go with him to the theater. She says that she'll meet him after a drink with his old flame. Um, we soon discover that the old flame is Sheldrake, and she never makes it to the Music Man. Poor decision. Bad. Original cast Music Man I know. on Broadway <laughs> versus having drinks with this jerk. In a back table in this, like... Hidden away, shamefully. Yeah. Right. Wonderful. Great idea. Good planning. So at the company Christmas party, um, Sheldrake's secretary um, reveals to Fran that um, she's just um, one in a string of uh, women that um, Sheldrake is sort of stringing along, I guess. And so she ends up heartbroken. Um, Baxter discovers that Fran and Sheldrake are, have a relationship, and so he's heartbroken. Um, and that all ends with um, Fran in the apartment in Baxter's bed unconscious from having had taken an overdose of sleeping pills. So, hilarious. Totally hilarious. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty dark comedy. Yeah. Yeah, it is a dark comedy. <laughs> it's a more dark than... Uh, darker than... I don't know. I was sort of uncomfortable about some of it. But, um, so that, that's... Yeah. That's, that's the movie in a nutshell. Do you have any... Um, any trivia about this movie? There was a lot of trivia about this movie, so I had to be selective. But uh, it won the Best Picture Award at the uh, Oscars for that year. And it was the last black and white picture from that era to win. Um, I wondered about that. because It's it's pretty late for a black and white movie. And then... Uh, it wasn't the last one ever, though, because then the artist won. Oh, sure. In 2011, oh, yeah. which was 
filmed in black and white for artistic reasons. <laughs> so, um, so Billy Wilder directed Marilyn Monroe in The Seven Year Itch and Some Like It Hot. And he hated working with her because she was so demanding and wanted to be pampered all the time. So he deliberately wrote that one mistress character to make fun of her in this movie. (laughs) Where the guy was like, she looks like Marilyn Monroe. And she seemed like a total idiot. I wondered about that. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, Marilyn Monroe was still around at this point and they're just making fun of her openly in this movie yeah it's a um, pointed reference so you know how cool the filming was with the office scenes yeah they actually created that with special like special effects from the time um to have that vast sea of faces it, it, i found that terrifying yeah. this office where they're just desks going on to infinity yeah um i know <laughs> it made me feel very lucky that we don't work in a place like that i know they so they had actors at the desks in the front and then in the middle distance they had children dressed in suits at tiny desks and then in the very back they had smaller desks with cut out figures operated by wires and that's how they made it seem like it went on forever. Because I guess they didn't actually have the space to have thousands of desks. <laughs> I feel like that's even more terrifying. To this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so apparently a lot of the movie was written as it was being filmed. The gin rummy game was added because Shirley MacLaine was learning how to play it at the time um, from the Rat Pack, who she was hanging out with. <laughs> and that was actually a like, significant plot point for yeah. gin rummy. Um, and then when she was talking about love at lunch one day, they added some of her talk into the script. Um, and I also read that Billy Wilder gave Jack Lemon free reign to like fill out his character of C.C. Baxter because he had worked with Lemon before and thought he was just amazing yeah. and trusted him to do that. Yeah, they had just worked together in Some Like It Hot. Which previously. is another one I think we should watch at some point. Yes. Uh, the office Christmas party scene was actually filmed on December 23rd, so everyone was in an authentically excited holiday <laughs> mood, and it was almost all of it was filmed on the first take, which I think is amazing. I It reminded me so much of Mad Men. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've watched it, but some of the ridiculous office parties, I was like, no one has office parties like that where everyone's like drunk and making out and yeah. dancing on tables. <laughs> Apparently they do. That's not what our office party is like. <laughs> no, we build gingerbread houses. <laughs> Same. Uh, so they specifically called out what um, C.C. Baxter was making in, in the movie, which was ninety four seventy a week, um, and which would work out to like in the low 40,000s right now, oh, yeah. which is not like a... You know, it's like a moderate salary, but for New York, it's probably not adequate for his Upper West Side apartment that's right by Central Park. His apartment was really nice. I was like, how are you affording this apartment? (laughs) No. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too, is, um, you know, whenever they would show how, like, cute and, like, adorable it was. I was like, that place, now that place would be, like, unimaginable, like $3,000 a month. Yeah. (laughs) 
I don't have it in my notes here, but I read somewhere else that the set decorators put two real Tiffany lamps in his apartment that were each worth like, you know, forty thousand dollars at the time. Of course. Like, because he would just have, you know, like how bachelors who don't make a lot of money right. just have Tiffany lamps. <laughs> he, he, I mean, he, he pours his pasta through a test track. <laughs> but he has he has priorities. Mike had real issues with that. <laughs> he was like, the sanitation alone. No. It's, uh... And then most of the tennis rackets then were made with the real cat guts, mm-hmm. right? So, like, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> okay they didn't actually eat that pasta <laughs> <laughs> so jack lemon said of his character cc baxter as i saw it he was ambitious a nice guy but gullible easily intimidated and fast to excuse his behavior in the end he changes because he faces up to having rationalized his morals he realizes he's been a dumb kid he's been had and reading that quote from him in some ways made me feel a little bit better about the movie because the whole movie I just kept thinking are you a moron or are you just also a terrible person and he only does one good thing at the very end but I mean it makes it clear that there was supposed to be some sort of moral transformation yeah and it was hard to see (laughs) yeah it wasn't very explicit in the movie um the American Film Institute ranked this as number 80 greatest movie of all time sure and this this is my favorite piece of trivia. Um, Soviet critics saw this as an indictment of the American system and a story that could only happen in a super capitalist society. <laughs> Which, in a way, like they sure. have a point. Yeah. Um, so then, at a dinner honoring him in East Berlin, Billy Wilder said the movie quote could happen anywhere in Hong Kong, Tokyo, Rome, Paris, London. But he said the one place it could not have happened was Moscow, and then all the the audience of East Germans, like, gave him a huge applause. And when that died down, he said, the reason this picture could not take place in Moscow is that in Moscow nobody has his own apartment. And then they all responded to that with silence. <laughs> <laughs> oh so God. I thought that was great. Oh my God. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about Shirley MacLaine? Yes. The fabulous? Yes, the fabulous Shirley MacLaine. So she was born in 1934 in Virginia. Um, she was named after Shirley Temple, who was six years old at the time. Her father was a professor of psychology and a public school administrator and a real estate agent, and they um, sort of traveled around the state of Virginia a lot and moved around the state of Virginia a lot when um, she... And her brother, Warren Beatty, uh, were kids. Um, When she was little, she had weak ankles, so her mother enrolled her in ballet school. Is that a real thing? I always thought people just made that up as an excuse to get out of things. I mean, you're three, so I don't know. I feel like you just, like, haven't learned, I don't know. I was sort of, I found some, I I found it sort of ironic because the ballet classes led to her like wanting to perform you know like from a very young age she wanted to perform um and when she right before her senior year of high school she went to new york city to try out on broadway um after she graduated from high school she um served as an understudy to the actress carol haney in the pajama game and when haney broke her ankle 
So she had some weak ankles, (laughs) perhaps. Shirley MacLaine replaced her. Um, It was a few months after that that um, film producer Halby Wallace saw her performance, signed her in a in a contract with Paramount, and and then she went to Hollywood. Her her first movie was an Alfred Hitchcock movie called The Trouble with Harry in 1955. And she won a Golden Globe for a New Star of the Year award, or for actresses. In 1958, she received her first Academy Award nomination for Some Came Running. um, And her second Oscar nomination um, was for The Apartment in 1960. She didn't win for The Apartment, um, but she at some point said, quote, I thought I would win for The Apartment, but then Elizabeth Taylor had a tracheotomy. So, <laughs> so does that mean she won that year? She, yeah, I guess. I mean, <laughs> she. <laughs> well, that shows a little bit of her character, I guess. Yeah. Um, Don Siegel, who directed her in Two Mules for Sister Sarah, um, said that, quote, it's hard to feel any great warmth for her. She's too unfeminine and has too much balls. She's very, very hard, which made me just like her even yeah. more than. <laughs> I think she, I mean, at least in this movie, I thought she appeared very feminine. Yeah, I mean, she had short hair, but who cares? She directed a documentary in 1975 um, called The Other Half of the Sky, which was about um, the experiences of women in China. And it was um, nominated for a documentary feature Oscar, which seems pretty impressive. Yeah. In The Turning Point in 1977, uh, a movie she starred in with um, Anne Bancroft, she um, portrayed a retired ballerina, so sort of reaching back to her roots. I've seen that movie. Oh, really? It's very, I mean, I've seen like every dance movie because I'm a nerd, but (laughs) it's a really good one and she's fabulous in it. Yeah, I I don't think I had ever heard of that movie, but I love her and I love Anne Bancroft, so I think that music on my, my list. In the 80s, she starred in um, Terms of Endearment and Steel Magnolias. Um, And then in 1990, she was in Postcards from the Edge with Meryl Streep. Um, And they played fictionalized versions of Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher. Um, And then in 1994, um, she was in the movie Guarding Tess, which is a terrible movie with Nicolas Cage, but it's one of my childhood favorites. So (laughs) shout out to Guarding Tess. And then um, she's continued to appear in numerous TV projects and some movies. And she's apparently going to be participating in a live-action film version of A Little Mermaid. Oh. At, at some point. Who is she going to be? I don't know. <laughs> um, she, she married um, a businessman named Steve Parker in 1954. Um, and they divorced in 1982. Um, they have one daughter. Um, she's known for having, for believing in, like, well, she's having strong uh, opinions about spirituality and um, the metaphysical realm. Believes that she has had many um, past lives, um, and that those sort of beliefs have um, have, uh, have sort of recurred in many of her characters over the years. Um, she also has a strong interest in UFOs and believes that she has seen numerous UFOs from her New Mexico ra- ranch. Um, so she's a... Uh, Sounds like a complex woman. That's right. She's well-rounded. <laughs> she's also the godmother to the daughter of former Democratic U.S. Representative Dennis Kucinich, um, which I guess also speaks to her like strong 
democratic um, tendencies. Um, however, she, she, I was reading, uh, she had, she had at some point in 2015 um, made some unfortunate and uh, not very nice comments about um, people who experience hardship, just uh, like Jews in the Holocaust, um, just that being part of their karma. What? Just really horrible. <laughs> I would oh go gosh. on record as saying, I like Shirley MacLaine, but that's a terrible thing to say. So, <laughs> so that's her. I loved her until that moment. <laughs> you were really going strong. I was even okay with the UFOs. Right. <laughs> but then, <laughs> and I saw her most recently in Downton Abbey. Oh, yeah. And she was great in that. Yeah. I mean, she was only in a couple episodes, mm-hmm. but... The feistiness was out. Mm-hmm. Once a feisty woman, always a feisty woman. Which I appreciate. Um, so, I will tell you about Jack Lemmon. He was born in 1925 in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. And from living in the Boston area, I can tell you that that is the richest suburb of Boston. And basically, if you're born there, you're like a toff. <laughs> so, he was a toff. <laughs> um he went, oh, he was born to Mildred Burgess LaRue and John Euler Lemon Jr., who was the president of a donut company, and he had an affluent upbringing. He attended Phillips Academy and Harvard College, so, you know, not bad. At Harvard, he became interested in theater, and he also was a member of the Navy College training program and served briefly during World War II before returning to Harvard. Um, after school, he moved to New York City and spent a lot of his time there playing piano in a bar before getting some small roles on the radio and um, in theater and television. And he got his first big role on the big screen in the comedy war drama Mr. Roberts with Henry Fonda and James Cagney. Um, and he had a complicated character that he was playing in that role, and he won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. So his first role was like very nuanced, like ambiguous about how you're supposed to feel about that person. Um, he went on to work on a number of films with comedian and close friend Ernie Cavix, including Bell Book and Candle in 1958. And then in 1959, he gave one of his top performances alongside Tony Curtis in Some Like It Hot. Did we already say that we have to add that to our list? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure it is on the list. We just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, And that was his first collaboration with Billy Wilder, who was also the director of this movie. He received critical acclaim for his portrayal of C.C. Bud Baxter in this movie, um... And then he continued on to huge success on the big screen in the 50s and 60s. And he sort of got a reputation for being America's everyman, like someone that the audiences could relate to. Although, I will say that I did not relate to this movie, but I don't think that we're the target audience for this. Um, The Fortune Cookie was the first movie that he partnered with Walter Matthau for, and the two came together again. For The Odd Couple in 1968. Um, 
In the 70s, he started to take on more dramatic roles, and he won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his performance in Save the Tiger in 1973. Uh, in 1988, he received the Life Achievement Award of the American Film Institute, and he died in 2001 in Los Angeles from bladder cancer. So, he had a pretty long career, although I honestly, Shirley MacLaine sounded more interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> She's still alive. <laughs> it is funny, though, how many people of a certain generation really loved him. and Like, mm-hmm. I remember my grandparents talking about him a lot. Yeah. And people saying, like, he was one of the best comedians of all time. Um, even, um, go ahead. Even though I didn't like his character in this movie, I thought he definitely had good comedic timing. Mm-hmm. And, like, his yeah. mannerisms were great. His line delivery was great. His character was such... I, don't, I can't even... like. There are no polite words, I think. Um, but you know, but his delivery was really... <laughs> did um, we get into it? Yes. What, what did you think of this film? <laughs> well, while we were watching it, my, my thoughts were, I'm sorry I made Hillary watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I do think it's an important movie. Like, it was a good movie to watch, but... It wasn't very enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, it was enjoyable in for me in the sense of like, like the shots were beautifully composed, and Shirley MacLaine was like, I think her her acting was stellar, and you know his delivery was fine. But just like all of the male characters were terrible, and the like, the even the characterization of the Jewish characters. I mean, who were obviously Jewish in the yeah. upper. I mean, I, I, like it was. It, I mean, it was uncomfortable. And then when she yeah. like tries to kill herself over, you know, this guy, it was sort of nice that he, that uh, Baxter, you know, like sort of sweetly takes away his razor blades and sort of <laughs> and says, "Don't jump out the window," and is trying to distract her. But like on the other hand. Like, it, it, it sort of trivializes it. It was played for laughs, which I just yeah. didn't appreciate at all. And then uh, I had a hard time. This is why I thought that comment by Jack Lemon was important for me watching the movie because I had a hard time understanding if he actually under if he knew what was going on basically because because the cc baxter character just seems so dumb yeah like after she tries to commit suicide he's like forcing her to play cards and then he keeps making comments like but i'm really good at this game so i'll win so like i was like are you trying to cheer her up are you just an idiot yeah it was hard (laughs) to tell well and it was i mean like from the beginning i was like i don't know why why would he give his car, his the keys to his apartment to you know to four company managers? How would that happen in the first place? That like these four people would yeah. come to him and say, "We want to use your apartment to take our mistresses there." Like you make it happen, and, and that all happens off screen too. Yeah, except for like yeah, and and then you just see one one point at the be- at the beginning where he's trying to like rearrange the schedule because he's sick. <laughs> So, like, I mean, I know that he, like, catapults up to administrative assistant, which, uh, you know, when it's a man, obviously that's an important role. And now, like, we think of it as, you know, a woman's job, and it's mm-hmm. not 
not important at all. Um, Even though they're the people who basically run everything right, in every office. Right. Um, but now that it's for women. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just seemed, I couldn't, his motivation made me think that he must be an idiot. Yeah, and it really seems like what they were trying to say is that he actually was of loose morals and then has a change of heart in the end, which is definitely subtext. But um, I kept trying to picture how that would have happened. Like, was one of the managers in the elevator and saying, like, oh, you know, I'm, I've got a hot thing on the side, but I don't know where to take her. And the whole time I kept thinking, you guys are managers. Like, go to a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> just... What's so there's there's nowhere you could go to the person's apartment, go to the lady's apartment, right? Or like kick your wife out, or like it seems like there are other logistical options besides using someone else's apartment. We have a lot of complaints about this movie, mostly the logistical ones. <laughs> Why? <laughs> and he just seemed like such a pushover too. Like when the the one manager calls him in the middle of the night and yeah. he's like, "I need to come up now," and. Like, first of all, I will not, if the phone rings in the middle of the night and I don't have, like, a sick relative or something, I'm not answering that phone. I'm not answering it, no. And even if I did answer the phone and the person said, I need to come to your apartment, I would just say, nope, and hang up and (laughs) go back about my business. Uh, Yeah, he just was pushed around and pushed around and pushed around, and I didn't. He never stands up for himself until the very end, and even when he does that, it's not like clear like if the fact that he likes Fran and she tries to commit suicide is not enough for him to have like a moral change yeah then what at the end makes the difference I mean or that he's just so naive that he would like call Mr. Sheldrake and 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 expect that he would care that his mistress just like tried to kill herself over him I mean, he's so... It's hard to tell whether he is just so naive and innocent or if he's stupid. And and that, like, I mean, at what point... At what point is, is he actually in... If he's actually in love with Fran at that point, which I think we're supposed to believe that he is in love with her, um, why would he, like, call Mr. Sheldrake and, and say, like, oh, your mistress is here? Why wouldn't he take that opportunity to be like, oh, I'm the one taking care of her. She's going to fall in love with me. And I'm like, I've saved her life. She should fall in love with me. This is the perfect opportunity to turn him against the other man. And he doesn't do it. Yeah, he kept, even after she did try to kill herself, he kept covering up for Sheldrake. Yeah. Like, with the not going to the police. And she, he told her that Sheldrake called or, like, wanted to talk to her when he didn't. It was almost like a Cyrano de Bergerac kind of thing. Where it was like... I love you, but since you love this other guy, I'm going to, like, help make him better so that you're not sad. <laughs> yeah, because I love you so much. And he'll, also, his love for her was, like, based on nothing. They had, right. like, two conversations. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although, she does say that he's the only one who takes the, his hat off in the elevator, and, like, that he doesn't, like, like touch her in the butt, or, like, like well, the other guy does. The like bar's that. clearly set very high. <laughs> All he has to do is take his hat off, and he's better than everybody else. I do feel like I sometimes lack sympathy for that whole trope of the woman who always falls for the bad guys kind of thing. Yeah. I'm just not very sympathetic to that. No. (laughs) 
No. <laughs> no. Because she said that it had been a pattern for her. And then I, it was not clear to me in this movie if she was aware that he was married when they got involved. Or it, it almost sounded like she was saying at one point she didn't know he was married yeah. in the beginning. But at that, by the time she found out, then she was in love with him. But still, I mean... It, if in that climate of like how horrible everyone was in that entire office, I would not go to that as my dating pool. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the, you live in New York City. There are other people. <laughs> what did you think about the secretary who she gets drunk at the she gets drunk at the Christmas party? Tells Fran that Fran is just the next one in the whole line of of women who have you know, like had some kind of relationship with Sheldrake and so it's sort of it's hard to tell whether she's doing that out of spite or as a like hey like don't get too involved with this man because he doesn't really care and then she knows that she killed that Fran tries to kill herself over Sheldrake and she doesn't like it's not at that point that she she like intervenes with the rest all of it it's only when she gets fired and she has really nothing left to lose that she calls Mrs. Sheldrake and says I have to tell you what's happening um I mean I read her as just a nasty person (laughs) because yeah I thought the same as you that there's a difference between going to someone and saying look I just want to warn you like I've been there with Sheldrake and he does this to a lot of women and he hurts them and like demonstrates that he's just using them that's like one thing and then it's another to be like you're a tramp and (laughs) just so you know he doesn't really love you (laughs) (laughs) and then yeah the when at the end she informed Sheldrake's wife it felt like she was doing that more as a revenge against Sheldrake than because she cared about yeah the attempted suicide so yeah, she wasn't great either. Yeah, although I guess I feel like she, you know, she, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that she's a nasty character because she clearly has none of the power. As That's the, true. Like, she was having an affair with a boss. She's just a secretary. And so if she had, had said anything before, she would, I mean, she lost her, she would have yeah. lost her job. And and she loses her job from for telling Fran even drunkenly about the whole situation. So I guess I don't fault her for not having done anything before, but you know, I'm sort of... She seemed bitter, not in the way of that she still had feelings for Sheldrake, but just uh, bitter about the way she'd been treated. Yeah, the whole situation. Yeah. Which she should be. Yes. (laughs) This was horrible, but that office environment was terrible. And it made me think that a lot of that Mad Men stuff must have really been true. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Um, I did, like, sort of, speaking of the office stuff, I loved seeing an office in the 19, you know, in 1960 with the, like, freedom calculator and the, like, <laughs> the typewriter and the, yeah. the Rolodex and the paper calendar that he has to flip through and, like, the messenger sending messages and inner office <laughs> envelopes and like just all the the notebooks that he like you know that they carried around with you know projections and performance reports and things like that. That's true. 
it was nice to see that and it didn't seem like anyone was working very much <laughs> it reminded me of those like office jobs where like you just kind of get into a position of power but you don't actually have to do very much yeah. except kind of like schmooze with people occasionally right. um and i don't know that i could have dealt with that as a person no yeah there's no like <laughs> there's no greater mission <laughs> but i mean sexual harassment laws didn't go into effect until the 70s so this really the treatment of women that way within the office environment I'm sh- I think was probably fairly accurate yeah. and like even my mom who is not that old was in the workforce when she was in her early 20s and there was definitely still at that point tons of <laughs> harassment going on um, so in a way it made me more appreciative of the fact that we do have laws today like yeah. you have some recourse basically if, yeah. if anything like that happened yeah uh, I just thought the the thing I liked the best about the movie was just a lot of the comedic details. Uh-huh. It was such a it was such a pleasure to watch Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine like when they were on screen together. I mm-hmm. tried to tune out what they were like the situation that they were in and more just like watching them act. It was yeah. Know, I thought that was just such a pleasure. I loved um, the only pleasure of the movie. Well, yeah, and they. Despite the fact that I didn't think their characters had great chemistry, I thought as actors they had pretty good chemistry mm-hmm. together. What did you think about his eight martinis that he drank at the bar on Christmas Eve? <laughs> it reminded me of The Thin Man, but it also made me like wonder how um, he was not dead, having drunk eight yeah. martinis in, I don't know, just a few hours. <laughs> Maybe he had some peanuts or something. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that this that bar scene where then he ends up sort of paired up with that woman mm-hmm. and they're dancing cheek to cheek at the end but their arms are just hanging limp <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great yeah. um, there, I, there were a lot of little gems that I related to like in the beginning when Jack Lemmon keeps trying to watch that movie on TV and then yeah. it keeps cutting to commercial and yeah. he's like ready for it to start and it cuts to commercial again. It's so great. I was like, oh, I hate commercials too. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. Um, do you want to talk any more about Dr. Dreyfus and Mrs. Dreyfus? I... The one thing that stood out to me was and that... Mrs. Lieberman? <laughs> Dr. Dreyfus seemed to be taking way too much pleasure in slapping, slapping her. I know. Fred. Like, he, it really, and I asked Mike, like, is that, like, actual medical practice? And he said that he thinks at the time it was. Like, you basically were just trying to keep someone awake. Right. I mean, he was trying to get her awake at that point. And I guess when you're, like, in somebody's apartment, when you don't, like, have access to maybe all of your tools, like, you're just gonna... You are going to ply her with coffee and smack her and then, like, walk her around. It just seemed like they were abused. Like, it was like, smack, smack, smack. And then they, like, took co- coffee just off the stove and started, like, pouring it <laughs> on her face. Her boil her esophagus. She'll be awake then. <laughs> and I was like, what? She's going to die now. <laughs> I mean, I sort of liked that there were those two, like, the Dreyfuses as, like, side characters who were, like, I don't know, that she, she was, like, you know, she says to Baxter, like, I don't care about you, but I care about that girl. And so I, I'm not making you food, but I'm going to make her food. And then she, like, comes over and insists that she eat, which, like, 
maybe is a Jewish stereotype, but it also yeah. is like the thing that she needed. She needed someone to insist that she eat. So yeah, I was wondering if that conversation counted as two women talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I did like that she came over and did that because that I mean her doing that and I guess. Dr. Dreyfus helping were like the only two kindnesses basically in the whole movie. Yeah. Well, in that, like, he he would come over and save, you know, her life, but then also would say to him, like, you're an asshole. Yeah. Like, <laughs> she deserves someone better than you. Um, I sort of appreciated that they were both very kind um, people. Yeah, I liked that too. Beautiful girl. You're a lovely picture, beautiful girl. You're a gorgeous mixture of all that lies under the big blue sky. Uh, well, are you ready to talk about costumes? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was not particularly struck by the costumes no. in this movie. The only ones that stood out to me were, I thought the elevator uniform was really cute. Yes. And then when Shirley MacLaine was in the black slip... She looked fantastic, and I also really liked her haircut, which isn't technically costumes, I mean, but it's a uh, it's style. Yeah, yeah. I that was her haircut and that slip were the, the two things that struck me. I mean, everything else was just sort of yeah. It was just like well, it was there were not a lot of women featured in the movie, so it was, except for the elevator operators. Yeah. Um. So it was just like a lot of men in suits, nondescript suits. Yeah. Great. Which they weren't even nice suits. It wasn't like um, Gregory Peck's double-breasted suit right. in Spellbound, where I was like, whoa. We would like to take you home with us. I'm sorry. But I don't want to be a, an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. Do you think that there is any social justice element to this movie? I mean, there's supposed to be a moral transformation, and I guess you could say that that counts as that. Watching it as just like a, a viewer, I thought there was a social justice message, but it was more just like me thinking, this is horrible, like how can the men treat them? I mean, the... This was a more anti-feminist movie than, like, the movies we've watched from 30 years before this. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, like, you already talked about the, like, sexual harassment policies in the the workplace um, that were obviously not in place and wouldn't be for, you know, another decade. And sort of, I don't know. I don't know if it makes me grateful that we worked in a time when we, those, those policies are in place because I think we still have problems but. yeah there's definitely still problems uh, as we know from the example of uber right yeah <laughs> yeah but it, i did think i mean that this was also pretty soft of a message but the way the doctor told him to be a mensch yeah i was like he's basically saying like be a human being which is kind of what social justice is yeah it's <laughs> like I didn't think by the end he particularly was a mensch, but... Yeah, well, and I've always understood mensch to mean, like, like you, you're, like, a good person, not yeah. just, a, like, a human being. You're, a, like, an upstanding um, 
person who like helps other people out and thinks of mm-hmm. people outside of yourself, which is not how they like interpreted it in the movie. Yeah. Or the, or like I don't know. In 1960, do you think of like the term human being as like something a little bit more like complex than just a person? I don't know. Yeah, I was surprised that they said it only meant be a human being because the way I understand it is more like what you said. I call Mike a mensch all the time. And he is a good human being. <laughs> but it's just... I mean, he's also a human being. But he's <laughs> <laughs> It's sad that that was... Like, they, that's what he had to aim for, was just, like, be a person. Which kind of implied also treat other people as human beings, which really he didn't with the Fran character. Yeah. They were just... Him and uh, the boss were just kind of trading her off. Like, oh, you could have her now. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if, like, part of it is that he needed to, like, come to understand that he, like... Like, he didn't... That he didn't have to, like, put himself in a position where he had no power and where he had no um, authority over his own apartment or his own, like, space. And, you know, because he actually does have a lot of power, but he was... Like relinquishing it, and mm-hmm. well, and his final decision is that he chooses doing the right thing over getting ahead. Yeah, which I guess could be seen as a social justice message. Yeah, because that I mean, the message you get in our culture all the time is like get ahead at all costs, basically. So, which is what he tries to do. Yeah, and he does it, and it doesn't work out that great for no. a lot of people. No. Mother, I don't want to be disagreeable or unkind. I've come home to live with you again here in the same house. But it can't be in the same way. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. I don't think I'll do anything of importance that will displease you. But, Mother, from now on, you must give me complete freedom, including deciding... Do you think there's any way this movie passes the Bechdel test? Well, there are there are at least like three female characters who have lines, like real lines. Yeah, <laughs> and so it would be Fran, Mrs. Dreyfus, and the secretary. Yeah, and the the woman he meets in the bar. Oh yeah, she so uh, she was four. funny, but she doesn't talk to any other women, so. Um, I guess it depends on what you think. I, I I don't think it really does. No, I would say like in the context of this movie, it doesn't. <laughs> they may have had conversations about the soup, but yeah. the like the subtext of that conversation was about like being treated right by this man who she, she may or may not have been in love with. Yeah. So I yeah it does does not pass, and it's not surprising when all the men in the movie are terrible and they're treating women terribly and they're treating everyone terribly. Yes. Yeah. So. Shocker. <laughs> Not a pro-woman movie. It's, it's. Are you surprised that this won Best Picture? No. <laughs> I'm not at all surprised. <laughs> I mean, I, I... In a way, I am. Just, but I, I guess I could see it winning for, like, the film technique. But yeah. I am surprised this would have been as popular as it was. I mean, it was 1960. Yeah, I guess I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm looking at it through modern eyes. <laughs> but I'm just like, no, this is not great. And 
honestly, like a lot of the movies from this time that have to deal with romance have some of these themes. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. We have a Doris Day movie coming up, which. Mm-hmm. Not quite like this, but, like, she's in a lot of movies where it's, like, she's deciding whether or not to have an affair with someone, or, like, the guy's cheating on her or something. So I guess that was kind of in the zeitgeist for this time. Yeah. Extramarital affairs. Which is probably why I don't like movies from this period (laughs) as much. (laughs) Oh, what's your rating for this movie? Oh, my rating... (laughs) My rating is two stars. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I might say 2.5 just because... Uh, of the the shots were so beautiful and um, the yeah. cinematography was lovely, but and the acting was good. and the acting was good. Um, but other than that, yeah, two and a half. It wasn't fun to watch. Like I felt like I needed to take breaks because I would yeah. get really mad. <laughs> you did a like like intersperse like a few minutes of watching Wonder Woman. Or yeah, like, I have to go take a walk and call my mom <laughs> and say I'm my sorry. Own, my own private Bechdel conversation. Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, what's, so what's our next movie? Our next movie is Meet Me in St. Louis by Listener Request. Yes. <laughs> so hopefully, uh, going back in time to the 40s, we will not be dealing with as rampant of sexism. Mm-hmm. A girl can hope. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.